Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Chapter 3, go down to verse 17. John chapter 3, verse 17. The Bible says, For God did not send the son, His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through Him. Who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But the one who practices the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Lord, this is a dark world that we do live in. And your word says that by the entrance of your word, we are given light. That's what we want today, Lord. Enlighten every heart in here in the way that it needs to be enlightened by your Holy Spirit. We ask in your name. Amen. And you may be seated. At first glance, Stephen Catherine's home might look like a dingy basement apartment. But then you notice that everything rests on crates. You see, Steve and Catherine live in an underground flood tunnel in Las Vegas. And get this, around 700 other people live there too. Day in and day out, they deal with black widow spiders and mosquitoes. But they say it's more comfortable than living on the streets, and the cops don't bother them. An article on Asylum.com profiled these flood tunnel dwellers saying that they formed a community by living in the dark. If you think about it, in some ways, that is a vivid picture of the world that we live in. The dark, the danger, the community, and the evading of the law. This morning, we're going to see that Jesus told Nicodemus, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his evil deeds will be exposed. Look at verse 17 with me. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of this only begotten Son of God. If we didn't study the Bible verse by verse in its context, someone who might be living in sin may read verse 17 and say to us, See there? God didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn us. Jesus is full of love, and he accepts everyone. People can have some really skewed views about who Jesus really is. I found this while I was studying. I think it fits great right here. It reads, The greatness of God is most clearly displayed in his Son. That's why Jesus' question to his disciples was so important when he said to them, 
Who do you say that I am? The question is even more crucial in our day because not every Jesus is the real Jesus. There's the Republican Jesus who's against tax increases and activist judges but is for family values and owning firearms. There's Democrat Jesus who's against Wall Street and Walmart but is for reducing our carbon footprint. There's Therapist Jesus who helps us cope with life's problems, heals our past, and tells us how valuable we are and not to be so hard on ourselves. There's Starbucks Jesus, who drinks fair trade coffee, loves spiritual conversations, drives a hybrid, and goes to French film festivals. There's Touchdown Jesus, who helps athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christians and determines the outcomes of Super Bowls. As a side note, Jesus must hate the Minnesota Vikings and the Mountaineers. <laughs> but that's just something I'm working through. There's gentle Jesus who was meek and mild, with high cheekbones, flowing hair, and walked around barefooted wearing a sash. There's hippie Jesus who teaches everyone to give peace a chance, imagine a world without religion, and help us remember that all you need is love. There's spirituality Jesus who hates religion, churches, pastors, and doctrine and would rather have people out in nature finding the God within by listening to spiritually ambiguous music. There's platitude Jesus, good for Christmas specials, greeting cards, and bad sermons, inspiring people just to believe in themselves. There's revolutionary Jesus who teaches us to rebel against the status quo, stick it to the man, and blame things on the system. And then there's Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Not another prophet, not another rabbi, not just another miracle worker. He was the one they had been waiting for, the Son of David, Abraham's chosen seed, the one to deliver us from captivity, which was the goal of the Mosaic Law. Yahweh in the flesh, the one to establish God's reign and rule, the one to heal the sick, give sight to the blind, heal the brokenhearted, and proclaim good news to the poor. You know, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. I thought that was pretty good. And be sure of this, one day God is going to judge this world. People may think they are getting away with evil because God in his mercy and patience is giving everyone space to repent. But listen to what the Lord says. In speaking to wicked humanity who persisted in their evil ways. This is Psalm 50 verse 21. These things you have done and I have kept silent and you thought I was entirely like you. What does that mean? Humanity's big mistake is us thinking that God is like us. It is true we are made in the image of God and that we are moral beings, but God is so much more. And mankind is in a fallen state of sin. One way to illustrate this is to consider the subject of crime. If a man threatens to smack his dog with a newspaper, there's no real consequence for that threat. But if he throws a punch at a police officer, he will more likely appear before a judge for threatening an officer of the law. 
However, if he smacks the President of the United States, he will find himself in prison for a very long time. It's basically the same crime, but in all three instances, in all three instances, but the penalty increased because of the importance of the one of whom the crime was committed against. And so the first answer to why people are condemned is they have not believed in the name of God's only Son. What is that name? The name Jesus. And what does Jesus mean? The answer to that question is to be found when the angel went to Joseph and was given his name, Jesus, who will save their people from their sins. The first two letters of that name are the first two letters of the great Old Testament name for God, Jehovah. And the remaining letters were for the word save or for salvation. Thus the whole name means Jehovah saves or Jehovah will save. It follows then that when John says men are condemned because they have not believed on the name of the one only Son of God, he means that they are condemned because they have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And so verse 18 is a concluding statement. John feels that because of verses 16 and 17 that Jesus is the crux of all eternity. He is essentially the fork in the road. Heaven and hell are not just issues of who is good and who is bad, even though their lies will evidence that. No, it's an issue of how a person responds to the uplifted, dying Savior. What the cross simply tells us is that we have to trust somebody else to satisfy the righteousness of God. Now this really upsets people who believe in their own goodness and righteousness. So you're telling me that I am no better than Charles Manson or Jeffrey Dahmer. Let me get this straight. As an upright citizen, I could be on the jury that condemns them, but ultimately they may be saved and I may be lost. Yes, that is what I'm saying. Now, I completely understand that from a human standpoint, there's a huge difference between everyone in here and a serial killer. The moral gap between us is enormous. But please understand, the gap between the very best of us and God's white-hot holiness is far, far greater. Sometimes people will accuse you by saying, so you think Christians are better people than non-Christians? Let me tell you, bub. I know some of Jesus' little sunbeams, and I wouldn't want to be stuck in an elevator with them. Let me say this. If a Christian is walking in the Spirit, we will be consistently behaving better than those who have not the Spirit of God. So are we better than the unbeliever? We certainly should be, but I can tell you this. We are certainly infinitely better off. It's like two men on a plane, one of whom is wearing a parachute and the other is not. Neither may be morally better than the other one, but the man with the parachute is certainly better off than, than the man that does not have a parachute. And the difference will be seen if the engines fail and they have to jump out at 20,000 feet. Likewise, Jesus warned us if we jump into eternity without him, we will perish. D.L. Moody tells this story. A good man was one day passing a saloon as a young man was coming out, and thinking to make sport of him, he said, Hey, deacon, how far is it to hell? 
The deacon gave no answer, but after riding a few feet, he turned to look after the scoffer and found that his horse had thrown him, and he lay there dead with a broken neck. Moody then said, I tell you, my friends, I would sooner give my right hand than to trifle with eternal things. What I'm saying is that while the final sentences of those who trust, who reject Christ is still future, the judgment will merely consummate what has already begun. The lost are condemned because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Saving faith goes beyond mere intellectual assent to the facts of the gospel, and it includes a self-denying trust and submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. Only such genuine faith produces the new birth and its resulting transformed heart and obedient life. Do we believe these things? Do we believe God when he tells us that we deserve to perish for our rebellion? Do you believe that God sent Jesus to die for you and by his death to bring you full salvation? If you do, then he calls upon you to do something. He asks you to bring your faith out of the mere realm of intellectual conviction into the area of action saying, Yes, Lord, I do believe these things. Thank you for dying for me. I commit my life to you and now I will go in the way you lead me, whatever that may involve. If you will make that commitment, God has already given you eternal life and has begun the transformation that will one day make you like the Lord Jesus Christ forever. Verse 19, please. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Of course, today there are many people who don't even believe that evil even exists. They deny all moral absolutes and claim that we make our own truth. William Haley, who was a legendary editor of the London Times, on the day of his retirement, wrote this. There are things which are bad and false, and no amount of hollow justification will make them good or true or beautiful. That it is a bad thing to be tortured or starved, humiliated or hurt, is not an opinion, it is a fact. That it is better for people to be loved and attended to rather than hated or neglected is again a plain fact, not a matter of opinion. That makes sense, right? But now listen to what the dean of the Chicago Divinity School wrote in 1930. Now let that sink in. This man was the head of a university that teaches theology. He wrote, The doctrine of original sin was a human theory of human behavior adequate to the scientific knowledge of St. Augustine's time, but has now been overthrown by more recent research. Have you ever wanted to grab somebody by the shoulders and just shake them until their teeth rattle? The incredible thing is that was written in the very decade when the Nazis with their final solution would murder six million Jews. And then in the evening they would listen to the classical music of Wagner while they sipped wine 
in their evening dress. I don't know about you, but it sure doesn't seem to me that sin and evil has been overthrown. It may sound good, but it is terrible doctrine. It has no ability to truly help you. I call it Bud Light Theology. Tastes great, less filling. But in stark contrast to that, sin is so ingrained in the human nature that one museum had to change a sign on one of their exhibits. The museum discovered that their do not touch sign was so ineffective that the antique furniture in the exhibit was being soiled and damaged through people constantly touching it. The museum staff considered disclosing the exhibit, but then someone came up with a great idea. They simply changed the sign to read, Please wash hands after touching the exhibit. <laughs> it worked. <laughs> be sure of this, my beloved. Sin is alive and well on this earth. And let's just be honest. If we aren't continually on guard, sin can be very attractive to our flesh. You won't find his name in the Bible, but Satan was the original sweet tart distributor. Do you remember those candies when you were young? They are sweet on the outside, but they are sour when you bite into them. Likewise, the enemy will come to you with, with something that is good on the outside, like a legitimate strong desire for food, sex, or some kind of achievement. But he will offer it to you in the wrong way and at the wrong time. He will get you to believe that this counterfeit pleasure is the only way to supply your emotional needs. He will offer sex to you on a computer screen or some other perverted way, moving you away from what is loving and true and twisting it into something that is evil and in the end completely destructive. It will always look attractive, that is, until you really bite into it. But the problem is that the sour and bitter part may not come for weeks, months, or even years. You can spend decades enjoying the sugary coating of sin only to find out too late when the sweetness is gone there's nothing left but a bitter taste. Here's a sad truth of the matter. People will not let go of their beloved sin unless the fear of the Lord grips their sin-loving hearts. Sinners are like a child whose eyes sparkle with delight as he holds a lighted stick of dynamite. He will not let go of it till he is convinced that he is in terrible danger. Dallas Willard writes at the time that his two-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter wanted to play in the forbidden mud, and so she kept sneaking over there when she thought they weren't looking. But every time she did, she would call out to her grandmother saying, Nana, don't look at me. Willard writes, that's the tender soul of a child who shows us how necessary it is that we be unobserved in our wrong. You know what? That's why the promise of hiddenness sells today. That's the idea of those who say what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. This is perhaps a sinner's prayer offered before every forbidden act, word, and thought. Don't look at me, God. Have you ever considered why nightclubs and bars are usually dark? I think it's possible without even realizing it, they know that their deeds are evil. 
But in contrast to that, when they are giving awards like an Oscar or a Golden Globe, everything is illuminated with spotlights because people want to be seen. And so, why will sinners not come into the light of life? It's really simple. Because they love darkness. They want to they want to persist in their evil deeds, and this keeps them from coming into the light. Because the closer one gets to the light, the more his sins are exposed. Why don't people come to the light? It's not primarily because they don't believe the gospel intellectually or because they struggle with it philosophically. Please remember this the next time you're involved with the discussion of those who attempt to undermine your faith. The issue is never evolution, Cain's wife, or the Immaculate Conception. According to Jesus, the one and only reason people don't come to the light is because they prefer the darkness. Why do people reject the light? Because they love the dark. It really is that simple. Verse 21, please. But who does not... But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. True believers hate their sin, but love righteousness. They have nothing to hide, and thus no reason to fear what the light might reveal. Jesus defined the true believer as one who practices the truth. Because true saving faith invariably manifests itself in deeds that are wrought in God. For we are his workmanship, Paul reminded the Ephesians, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In opposition to living in the dark and hiding one's deeds, those who love the truth will walk in the light and they are happy for their deeds to be exposed. But there is one strange aspect about walking in the light, and it's this. The closer you get to the light of Christ, the more that's going to expose your sins because the light will keep getting brighter. The result of that is the light will reveal sin that you may not have even noticed otherwise. Well, not while we consider big sins like getting drunk or adultery, but in my life I find the closer I get to the light the more God changes and reveals things to me. And he convicts me of things like attitude, time management, and sins of omission when I didn't do the good that I could have done. This is to be expected, I guess. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15:9, I am the least of the apostles, to which you might sarcastically say, Wow, Paul, how humble you are, how self-deprecating the least of all the apostles. That's like us saying, I am the poorest of all the billionaires. Now during Paul's time, the apostles would have been considered the most exclusive group of men that lived on the entire planet. The apostles held an unprecedented and unrepeatable office. So that doesn't sound very humble, we say. But much later in his life, Paul wrote in Ephesians 3.8, I am the least of all the saints. And then around two years before he was martyred for his faith, Paul wrote these words, which we find in 1 Timothy 1.15, where he refers to himself as the chief or the worst of all sinners. He went from the least of the apostles to the least of the saints to the worst of all sinners. 
What changed? I think as I said earlier, the closer Paul got to the Lord, the more he realized his sin and the forgiveness and what that truly meant. This is what the Lord wants to do in each one of us this morning. It's not just about relocation. It's about transformation. It's not about what God wants to do to you. It's about what God wants to do in you. It's really about allowing Jesus to permeate our little kingdoms one choice at a time. Take the faith of Abraham as an example. Abraham is cited many times in the Bible as an illustration of the man who had great faith. But Abraham's faith did not begin all that great. The 11th chapter of Hebrews gives us his progression of faith as God sees it. Abraham is praised for his faith in that chapter four times. The first verse on Abraham's faith says this, By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. That was faith, but such faith like that doesn't need to be too strong. It was only faith in God's ability to lead the Hebrew patriarch out of Mesopotamia and into Palestine. Actually, the fact that Abraham's faith was weak at this point is dramatized by a very interesting part of that story. When God came to Abraham in the Ur of the Chaldees, Abraham was called to leave that place and then travel down through the area that is now modern-day Syria and Lebanon to what today is called Israel. The entire journey measured over a thousand miles. Now, Abraham began in the best of faith. Yet when we come to the end of the first chapter of his story, as told in Genesis 11, we find that Abraham stopped at Haran, which is a little town in Syria. Haran was a long way from Ur, it is true, but was also a long way from Palestine. Unfortunately, Abraham stayed in Haran until his father died, and it took another call of God to get him moving again. This time he was 75 years old. At this point in the story, Abraham's faith was weak, but God's promises to him were not withdrawn because of it. Abraham's faith was not allowed to rest at that initial level. The next verse of Hebrews goes on to say, By faith Abraham made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. Now this level of faith was stronger for it was the faith exercised in the face of many dangers and difficulties. During these years, Abraham's faith must have grew remarkably. To the extent that in Hebrews 11, the author of Hebrews goes on to speak of the faith that both Abraham and Sarah exercised in believing that God would give them a son even though both of them were well past childbearing age. Here faith had come to be strong, for it was a faith based on the assurance that God was able to perform miracles. Now the fourth and final reference to Abraham's faith refers to that complete trust in God when God asked him to offer up and sacrifice his only son. This was a faith that led Abraham to believe that God was going to perform a resurrection. The Bible says, Who had received the promises of about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. 
As we finish up this morning, I do not know where you are along this pathway of faith. Perhaps you are one who has not even taken the initial step of believing what God has to say about your sinful condition and about his offer of salvation through Christ. If so, that is where you should begin. God would say, how can you believe me for miracles in your life if you cannot even believe the truths I have to teach about my son? Or perhaps you have begun to walk by faith, but you have found difficulties. This is not strange. God sends storms as well as calm waters. The difficulties are intended to help you to grow strong. So learn to trust him. The God of Abraham is the same today. He can help you as he helped the patriarchs. Finally, you may be one to whom God is asking to believe in him to do something that, like in Abraham's case, seems impossible at this moment. I do not know what that particular miracle may be in your life. It may be a personality trait that God is promising to change. It may be a difficult situation at work or at home. It may involve any number of things. Whatever it is, you grow strong in faith by learning to trust Him. In some of these experiences, you may learn something about God's plans in nature that you cannot learn any other way. So what is your attitude? Doubtful? Rebellious? Don't let it be. Instead say, yes, Lord, I believe all you are saying. Help me to believe and become strong. I now want to walk in light in every area of my life. And as always, if you'd like to talk, please see me or someone else after the service. We are so thankful, Lord, that you did come to reveal light to us. And it's such joy to walk in the light. He said, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. We have fellowship with you, and we have fellowship with our brothers and sisters. And there is no better way to live than that. Father, you know every heart in here. I pray that if there are unsaved people, Lord, that you would have remove the blinders that Satan would put over their eyes and let them see the glorious gospel of Christ. There are probably some of us in here, Lord, who just need sanctification. There are areas in our lives as Christians we need to lay down and grow stronger in you in faith. Lord, there are some here probably who are trying their very best to serve you, but their hands hang low and they're discouraged. I pray that you would encourage them this morning. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.